0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about understanding medical research with Dr. Perry Wilson. Dr. Wilson is the Course Director of Interpretation of the Medical Literature at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology.
1: Perry, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do.
0: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a physician.
2: I'm, uh, I speak. Uh, specialize in internal medicine and nephrology, which is kidney diseases. Uh, but most of my time is spent doing clinical research. So my lab does clinical trials. Um, uh, we use a lot of uh, what people might call big data approaches, um, getting data and analyses into the electronic health record. Uh, but I, I I think one of my real passions has been uh, trying to explain medical research uh, to, to everyone. Um, it's something that I love to do. I love medical research. I think, you know, it's it's transformed humanity uh, over the past century, and I want to share that enthusiasm with people. And so I've been uh, sort of on my, on my off hours writing uh, columns about new medical studies, um, uh, trying to uh, get people as excited as I am about the medical research process.
1: Well, you know, and, and that's such a, a great thing to kick off with, because especially this year, there's been a lot of misinformation, a lot of ambiguity, a lot of trepidation on the part of the general public about medical research. So maybe you can start off by talking to us a little bit about um, how that misinformation gets propagated and what we can do about it.
2: Sure. Yeah. COVID has really Turned up to eleven medical misinformation. It's always been out there. You know, it's even before the internet. There were uh, you know people coming through with their patent medicines and tonics and 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 trying to you know foist some um, something in a vial on an unsuspecting population. That will always be there. There'll always be people trying to make a buck from fake information. Um, but as the internet uh, exploded and access to information became more available, um, as social media exploded and the sharing of information became, you know, exponentially easier, and then now with COVID, it was really this perfect storm of medical information that, we were, that we, were all, we were all hit with. It was the first time I can remember where literally everyone was searching for the same thing online um, when it comes to medical studies. So before COVID, you know, you had people that were looking for the latest diet that would help them lose a few pounds. And then, you know, of course, you had people who may, might have had a new diagnosis, like a new cancer diagnosis, for example, and they're searching that. And there's misinformation in all those spaces. But all of a sudden, 2020 comes... And every single person is searching for any information they can find about COVID. And in that environment, you are going to get a lot of misinformation out there. And that's exactly what happened.
1: But you know, Perry, it's really interesting because for many people, they think the internet was really the boon of information sharing and a great way for people to get high quality information and disseminate it across a large population. So I think one of the key issues is how do people distinguish from good information, factual information versus misinformation? Both of them seem to be apparent on the Internet, but sometimes it's hard to tell them apart.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the double edged swords of our information age. So, so one thing I, I always remind people is that there is such a thing as a bad medical study. There is there is good data and bad data. There are good studies and bad studies. And when access to that information is so readily available, so unfiltered, or sometimes just filtered through the sort of biases of whoever's on your social media feed. It's, it has become really easy to find information that confirms your previously held beliefs. And if there is one thing I sort of caution people against when they go looking for information is – Do it with an open mind. Don't try to find things that confirm what you already believe to be true. Because maybe that worked back in the day when you went into the encyclopedia and everything was sort of uh, nicely laid out and had been vetted by an editorial board and things like that. But what the problem with social media is similar beliefs cluster together. The social media algorithms on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all the social media um, companies... Work the same way. They are designed to maximize engagement, which is eyeballs on the screen, clicks, likes, retweets, etc. In that environment, things that are nuanced, um, that are subtle, that don't sort of confirm what people want to be true, don't get a lot of engagement. And those things that are more exciting and dramatic, you know, oh, we've got a cure for COVID in our medicine chest right now, gets a ton of engagement. And one of the things that we used to be able to do as humans was trust what we perceive as the majority opinion. When a lot of people share an opinion, we would go around in our social lives and say, oh, that's probably true. You know, most people sort of think this. And I've heard this from a number of people. In social media now, it's possible to go down a rabbit hole of misinformation where every voice you see, every link you click is reinforcing the false information. And what you then get is this erroneous perception that there's this wealth of data out there that's supporting your belief when in fact it's all this, you know, self-perpetuating engagement knot. And you've got to be able to get out of there. The easiest way is right off the bat Be honest with yourself. Ask yourself what you want to be true and recognize that if you find data that supports what you want to be true, you even have to be extra skeptical about that type of data.
1: Yeah, so true. I, You know, I just finished reading uh, Adam Grant's book, Think Again, which for if anybody uh, is a big fan of Adam Grant or enjoys uh, reading organizational psychologists, um, I highly recommend it. But it's exactly to your point about rethinking uh, your a priori biases. But you know, Perry, it's really difficult, right? Because if you um, are looking for something, something appears to be true, it fits with your kind of gut, you're more likely to think that that's right. So... Are there any objective ways? For example, if if patients, you know, some of the people who are listening to our show today, they may have just been diagnosed with cancer, or they may be looking for other medical information. And it's so easy to go to the internet. It's information at our fingertips. Are there any ways that you can really distinguish in tangible ways um, good information versus garbage?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, there, there, there certainly are, and it it takes um, it does take a little bit of of, of work, um, and you do. It's the hardest thing in the world um, to disregard information that feels right to you, that speaks to you in that way, because that is a very human thing that we all do. But there, here, are, I can give you a couple of tips. Um, so, so number one is um, that uh, biologic plausibility is only the start. Of medical research, not the end. And what I mean by biologic plausibility is when something is stated that makes sense biologically. So sometimes it's easier to give an example that doesn't make sense. So if I told you that, um, if I, you know, wrapped my necktie around my head, uh, it would, um, it would help the arthritis in my knees. That's not biologically plausible. There's no real reason to think that that should work. So we don't have to pay much attention to that. But there are lots of examples of things that seem biologically plausible. For example, we know that as you age, there's more oxidative stress in your body. um, And that oxidative stress might lead to, you know, some of the symptoms of aging, like atherosclerosis and stuff. We also have a chemical called vitamin E, which is an antioxidant, well reported as an antioxidant. It's biologically plausible then that vitamin E would be good at helping against aging, maybe might prevent heart attacks and things like that. Now, a lot of people stop there. They say, Oh, that's biologically plausible. You know, oxidation is bad, antioxidant is good, vitamin E is cheap, it's at my drugstore, there's very limited side effects, you know, this is great. Um, it helps to confirm a belief that many of us want to be true, that we can take charge of our lives um, without you know, paying pharmaceutical companies and, and without you know, having side effects. So there's a lot going for vitamin E. But let me tell you what happened with vitamin E. They did a randomized trial of vitamin E in people who are at risk of heart disease and actually found not only was there no difference in the rate of heart attacks, um, the people taking vitamin E compared to placebo, but the people taking vitamin E had more heart failure, um, statistically more heart failure than those taking placebo. And again and again in medicine, we see biologic plausibility and actual efficacy getting untied. So what I tell people is that biologically plausible thing that you read about, like, oh, this is interesting, right? It it, it works in cell culture. The mice seem to respond to this, and it all sort of makes sense with how we understand the world. That's great, but that's only the beginning. You really want to see that randomized trial um, not because you know I'm I'm the kind of guy who you know I'm I, I'm just following the rules and everything needs a randomized trial. It's because we've been burned so many times before, and I think that's what people don't realize. It's not like jumping through an arbitrary hoop. We've been wrong a lot when it comes to biologic plausibility. So I really do tell people we want a randomized trial, and if you want to be really sure you're not you know swallowing some patent medicine. You want to see a replication of that study. You want to see more than one study that's showing the same thing. And ideally, studies done by different people, you know, different groups across the country or in different countries in the world. That's how you build an evidence base. And of course, that's what doctors' jobs are, right? So one of the easiest things you can do is if you have a trusted healthcare provider in your life, you know, it is our job to be doing this. And, uh, you know, ask them, talk to them. Um, We're often uh, excited to talk to you about what's real and what's not. And again, just hear it with an open mind.
1: Yeah. So, so good uh, in terms of the information of looking for randomized control trials, especially that uh, are all going in the same direction because we've we've all seen randomized control trials that then are disproven by other randomized control trials. But you know, Perry, it's so difficult for the general public to actually access good randomized control trials. They're not really going to PubMed and searching the medical literature and looking at things with a critical eye and in terms of talking to their doctor, that's certainly a great way to start, but there are also, um, quote, doctors who you can find online who are spewing misinformation. So how do you kind of get around that?
2: Yeah, I, you know, you, you, you've got to be careful, really anything that comes from social media, whether it's YouTube or Twitter, and hey, I'm on Twitter, um, but uh, you, you do have to be careful because of the echo chamber effect. Um, someone can sort of wear the mantle of authority on social media based on sort of the number of followers and stuff that they have. And that might make what they're saying seem more believable when in fact it's not. And so, you know, social media is fun and interesting and a great place to share pictures. It's not where I recommend people do their research um, for for medical questions. There are some absolutely wonderful medical uh, reporters out there. So if you don't, you know, if you don't Want to go to the primary literature and you know pick up your copy of the New England Journal of Medicine? Um, there's some great science and medicine reporters out there. Um, you want to look for reporters that that's their beat. So um, uh, because of uh, you know the slow death of the newspaper industry in America, it, you get a lot of times the science and health and you know even sports reporters are all the same person in some outlets so you want to look for someone whose job is to write about health and medicine they're often very well trained and are a good nuanced eye and if you're you know reading about a a new drug, a new treatment. Um, you want to read from a couple of different people, but you know I do. I say I recommend look for people. There's some great writing, for example, in, in the Atlantic. Um, uh, the the science section of the New York Times has always been uh, very strong. Do they get it right 100 percent of the time? No, but that's why you look for other articles too. Um, that said it is not impossible for lay people to go into the real medical literature. Um, and in, in, in fact, I, I, I have a course online um, here at Yale, which is free, uh, called Understanding Medical Research. Your Facebook friend is wrong. It's on the Coursera platform. Um, you can search for it, and uh, basically, it is an online course of a, you know fifteen minute lectures that you can watch over your lunch break. Where I teach you how to find a actual medical article. You know, go to PubMed and how to find it, um, how to read it, and how to interpret the results. So if if uh, any of the listeners really want to get deep into this, really want to take that next step to understanding medical research, it's accessible. You don't need a degree in chemistry. You don't need to remember calculus. You just need some logical thinking skills and intuition. Um, so so a little pitch for, uh, for that course. It's free.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and it's so important for people really to, you know, do your own research and be vigilant about it so that you're not taking other people's word for it. You're going to the source and knowing how to interpret that. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute, um, but please stay tuned to learn more about understanding medical research with my guest, Dr. Perry Wilson.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Perry Wilson. We're talking about understanding medical research. And, you know, Perry, before the break, we were talking about how much misinformation really is out there um, on the Internet, Um And whether it's about COVID or whether it's about cancer or whether it's about any topic, really, whether it's medical or not, there is just so much misinformation that's propagated out there. So let's talk a little bit about some of the ways that uh, we can mitigate that. Um, You know, aside from being vigilant consumers of medical research, what else can be done to really kind of tamp down on... Um, on all of the misinformation that's out there.
2: Yeah, this is this is really hard uh, problem that it's clear a lot of the social media sh- companies are struggling with. As you know, you you see Facebook and Twitter, for example, imposing. Um, Essentially, fact checking on some tweets, uh, particularly surrounding hot button issues, for example, you know, vaccination, um, where they're literally, you know, blocking tweets, blocking posts that um, are construed by some of their moderators moderators to be potentially anti-vax. For example, this um, does strike some people as heavy handed. There are concerns, certainly, about you know, is this going to have a, a chilling effect on speech? Um, of course, on the other side, people say that these are private companies. <laughs> that are you know uh, can do whatever they want within the confines of their own uh, their own platform it strikes me though that it's a bit of whack-a-mole here um, and that these efforts are reactive rather than proactive so so what can we do to be more proactive you know one of the things I've seen that's a little clever is um, uh, Twitter has been uh, Generating a little pop-up when you retweet an article if it notes that you haven't actually read the article. So it, how does it, it you know you
1: read the article?
2: I, so I, I think well, yeah, that's that's a whole other topic, right? <laughs> nice is like how it knows whether you've opened the other window to look at the article. But I think what it's doing is so the the, the article will have a the tweet the link or the the tweet will have the link to the article. Twitter knows if you've clicked that link because it's within Twitter. Um, If you haven't and you click retweet, it's been saying, you know, oh, hey, do you want to maybe read this article before you retweet (laughs) it? That is that is an interesting strategy because it um, it takes the emotion slightly down. There's a tendency for people to share and retweet things that are emotionally activating whether they make you angry or make you happy right whether it's a you know mama kitten cuddling with baby kittens or whether it's you know someone saying something terrible and caught on tape both of those strong reactions elicit a lot of engagement Um, and Trying to remove that a little bit, giving people a little extra time, say, wait, 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 do you really want to put this out there? Do you want to share this? Might help a little bit. My hope lies, um, maybe uh, maybe too much, but my hope lies a lot with the younger generations, honestly, who are growing up in this environment and, in my opinion, are actually quite a bit more savvy.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that even our patients who come in, many times... Um, you know the the older generation sometimes um, will have heard things like sugar feeds cancer or mm. uh, turmeric can stop all cancer, and yeah. some of our our younger uh, patients or patients' families. It's remarkable. They will have gone to the literature and be quizzing you on the latest study (laughs) that was published in the New England Journal or what just came out at ASCO. Um, So it really does behoove us to um, be wary of of what's out there. Now, are there... Are there certain places where uh, people should go to kind of look at at the literature if they don't go to PubMed directly and mm-hmm. and again your course will tell them how how they can actually <laughs> go to the primary literature but are there certain websites that you think are you know generally pretty reliable versus you know kind of taking the latest um, weird theory that's out there
2: absolutely yeah um, now, as I mentioned some of the the large news organizations that have dedicated science writers are, are a great um, a great tool but if you if you really want dedicated there's a couple of good sites um, medscape.com and full disclosure I have a weekly column on medscape.com but medscape.com is a is a medical uh, a news website it's an offshoot of WebMD which actually does a very nice job they have dedicated reporters covering the latest medical studies, um, which is quite good. Stat.com, which is another um, medical news focused website, is quite good. Um, And you know, as you're exploring there, and there's there are other sites as well. And when you when you're exploring a site, I I think one of the real hints um, as you're reading through as a reader to know, you know, about the quality here is look. For emotion in the writing, and if there is too much, be worried. Um, real, real medical writing is. Often not the most exciting thing. This is not Hemingway. This is reporting on often nuanced medical studies and drugs that have, you know, some benefit, but some risks. And um, if your reporting is expressive of that, then it's good reporting. Um, You know, latest breakthrough, you know, miracle cure, new silver bullet, the end of blank disease is in sight. These highly emotional headlines are a good red flag that you're not on a site that's taking this very seriously.
1: Right. I mean, it goes back to the old adage of if it sounds too good to be true, it likely is. And so I'll add to your list. I I think that, you know, there are some good professional organizations, um, that people can turn to. So, um, uh, ASCO uh, has um, yeah. uh, some websites that are dedicated to patient information, um, cancer.net, for example, um, the American Cancer Society, cancer.org, um, has some great information. And there are a variety of associations for whatever cancer might ail you, whether it's breast cancer or leukemia or or, uh, you know, colon and rectal cancer, go to the, the uh, organizations that are really doing the research into this because very often they will publish that data. And a good hint is to look for the footnotes because very often they will lead you uh, to the studies and to the literature um, that they're citing in making the claim that they, that they have. So, so Perry, you know, we, we have some of that data for cancer. And I think that, you know, because cancer has been around for a long time, a lot of the misinformation now, I think is starting to die down. There still are some old wives tales out there like, you know, sugar feeds cancer or, or turmeric will cure all cancers. Uh, PS for our listeners, neither of those two statements are true. Um, But for novel diseases, um, things like COVID, um, it's a lot harder, I think, for people, especially initially, to weed out some of that misinformation. So what are some of the 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 misinformations, the hot buttons that you found out there that are propagated that you'd like to dispel?
2: Oh, my gosh, COVID has has really uh, given those of us who who like to correct the record in medicine. um, It's been a full-time job in COVID. And I think in part, it gets back to that idea of motivated reasoning. We all hate this pandemic. Every single one of us wants nothing more than for it to be over. And if there were some simple cure that was cheap and effective and worked 100% of the time, oh my gosh, it would be amazing. We all want that. Um, and so you had this proliferation of data coming out early in COVID. And I think uh, the sort of prototypical one um, was uh, the, the study surrounding hydroxychloroquine, which is an antimalarial drug that's also used for um, lupus, which is an autoimmune disease, uh, an old drug that a lot of experience with. And, and the truth is relatively safe as as some drugs go although there can be risks of cardiac arrhythmias in people who take it but it's not you know it's not the most toxic drug in the world and some early studies you know 10 20 people suggested maybe they get a little better faster now skip ahead and i'll tell you that large clinical trials have been done multiple now i think we're at nine or ten large clinical trials of hydroxychloroquine all of them negative um we were you know Th- th- that's fairly well confirmed. But initially, there was this huge enthusiasm surrounding it. And, and uh, to the point where, you know, people were stockpiling the stuff, people were, were were taking it. And I think it fed what we wanted to believe, which was that there was a solution. And unfortunately, the truth is like – it's rare that things work that well. It's just unlikely that no matter what comes down the pipe, the cure is going to be something in your medicine cabinet. It that just doesn't happen very often. Yeah, you know, the exception being maybe like scurvy, um, and and vitamin C, um, and even that took a randomized trial to figure out uh, back on the high seas. Um, so 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 that was certainly a big one. Um, we see a lot now. What's more concerning, I think, even than the medication stuff, is the vaccination um, issues in COVID. So these are new vaccines, a lot of vaccine hesitancy at baseline, kind of brought up to a degree by the fact that there's some new technologies in these vaccines, like mRNA technology, which I will point out, is new in the sense that we've never done a broad scale treatment with it, but is not new. It's actually been in, in, in clinical use for um, more than a decade now, but still new stuff for people. And we're seeing a lot of misinformation about what is in the vaccine, how the trials were done. I was reading um, on social media that uh, people were saying that uh, the trials were inoculating um, their are volunteers with COVID when they walked through the door, which which is uh, a, a trial design that is quite controversial and is not what happened in, in these large in these large clinical trials. Um, and the problem, of course, with this misinformation is that this really does hurt our ability to end this pandemic because the vaccines are the best tools we have. The other good tools we have, there's lots of misinformation around as well, masks, right? You still see posts saying that masks reduce your blood oxygen content or increase the carbon dioxide content. Um, You're a surgeon. uh, My wife is a surgeon. She is wearing a mask for eight hours a day every day, and her oxygen level is perfectly fine. She doesn't get lung disease or infections. That's still out there. Um, And it really does. It's just hurting our ability to end the pandemic faster. We're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot with this stuff.
1: Well, and you know, the, the other big piece of misinformation, I, I was watching the news the other day and they were saying that fully 33% of Americans that were surveyed uh, in this one poll felt that COVID was not real. And, and you yeah, kind of that, shake your head and you say, yeah. um, we're now over half a million people dead in this country of a disease that you think is not real.
2: It's and for those of us um you know in, including myself and, and I'm sure you as well who have cared for these patients in the hospital that it's particularly painful to hear that um, and and of course, some of us have lost loved ones to the disease but um you know again i i i'm doing, I'm trying to do my best to understand where this comes from, and I do think it comes from a place of <laughs> it's it's a desire. why do people believe that it's not real because they don't want it to be real and if we just ask people, be aware of your motivations. And be, s- be skeptical of data that only confirms what you want to be
0: true, people be in good shape. Dr. Perry Wilson is the Course Director of Interpretation of the Medical Literature at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.